We had a number of strokes of luck at The Simpsons, which allowed us to be running the show within two years of having arrived there. Conan O'Brien, who was ahead of us in line, got suddenly became a famous talk show host and left, thereby making us the most senior people there after like eight months. On the show, we talked to legendary American television writer and producer Bill Oakley. Bill has worked on various shows down the years, such as The Simpsons, Futurama and The Cleveland Show. Bill, alongside his writing partner Josh Weinstein, have written numerous classic Simpsons episodes, such as Who Shot Mr. Burns, Bart vs. Australia, and 22 short films about Springfield. He's the brains behind Steamed Hams, and one of his earliest episodes which he wrote for The Simpsons is believed to have predicted the events of 2020. Bill starts off by telling us about one of his more recent projects, Close Enough. I actually worked on the show early on. I worked on, you guys know what regular show is? Uh, is that like one of the late night ones? Okay. It's by the same guy who did regular show, which was here in America. It was on adults or some cartoon network. Um, and it's anyway, so I have worked with that guy, the guy who created that JG Quintel. I worked with him kind of helping develop that, uh, for a little bit into a series. And then he called me when he had his new series and I did the same thing. So I wasn't, I wouldn't say I was like a full-time person on the show. And, um, I kind of helped, I kind of helped, I let, he bounced stuff off me in the early days. And, uh, I worked with the team, uh, for a few months and we made up some stories and I did write the script for one of the first episodes. Um, this had a, this project was extremely, had a long time coming to air because I actually did all that work in 2017 in like March of 2017. And that show just came on the air a few months, like two months ago. And um, it had a long, long history, but it's really funny. And basically it has, it, it, it's very hard to describe to the casual viewer. You, I think you kind of have to uh, see it. It has a very strange off the wall, surreal quality to it. Uh, much like regular show did. It's got that same sensibility and he's performs. He was one of the stars of the creator is one of the stars of the show as he was in regular show. And it's really and totally informed by his extremely surreal off the wall sense of humor. And it's basically, it's a more domestic setting. Um, it's a, fa- it's basically a, a small family, uh, grow- based on his own life. You know, he said there's a husband and a wife, uh, and they're young and they have a kid and they also have, uh, sort of like roommates or, or apartment mates who are a divorced couple. But and and it sounds that sounds extremely domestic and regular, but it's extremely insane. Like the stories may start out from some real place, but they spiral into total craziness, <laughs> um, like uh, unbelievable craziness, which is really funny. And so um, I was extremely excited to have worked on it, and I was surprised. Honestly, I was kind of surprised when it finally came out because I, I was, it, it took three years uh, between the time that I had last worked on it and the time that it suddenly came out, and uh, I really enjoy it. So. It, so you're saying it took three years. So I'm quite, I'm kind of interested in like the writing process and maybe just like comedy writing in general. So do you think comedy changes and what people find even funny changes over like maybe the space of a decade or two, or does the principles remain the same? Some of the principles remain the same. I think people it definitely changes. I think that like there's no question that it changes, and the longer the more people's sense of humor, the longer the period of time, the more people's sense of humor changes. Like right. it's very hard to be amused by 
cartoons and humorous magazine articles from 1890 or 1900. Like people's senses of humor were extremely different back then. And it's very rare to find stuff that still holds up today. But like an example would be Buster Keaton or films of Buster Keaton or the writings of, this would be in America, writings of Robert Benchley, some of the things, some of the things by Mark Twain, but most of the things are very particular to a sense of humor in their time and are no longer funny to us modern people. But stuff from the 50s and 60s is still funny and some stuff from the 30s like tv shows and certain movies still hold up but i think what's happened is that as popular culture has become so diverse and there's not it's not just like yeah. you know a few i don't know 30 years ago everybody was watching the same movies everybody was watching the same three tv channels and reading one mad magazine and that was it and now there's and so like that was where you developed your sense of humor and i think that now that there's 20 gazillion places to get your humor, we have a slightly more diverse set of senses of humor, which is why it's extremely hard to appeal to a large group of people. And when that happens, in the case of, of you know, with the last, probably the last mega successful sitcom we'll ever see, which is like the Big Bang Theory or Modern Family, like that's why that kind of thing is such gold because it's, you know, some people like really off the wall humor and some people like really domestic humor and some people like really simple jokes. And so like, if you can get something that even gets a, even gets 20 or 30% of the audience to agree that it's enjoyable. It's a gold mine. Yeah. So that's why they continue to do it, even though 99% of the stuff doesn't succeed. So do you think there's a golden era for comedy when it was a, when it was at its best? Um, no, I wouldn't say that there's any particular era when it was at its best. I think it comes, it comes and goes depending on certain groups certain groups of creators that that had chief prominence. Like I suspect that people would say that comedy was at certain pe- in America, certain peaks would be like in the mid to late 1950s when mad magazine was at its early heights. And when TV was taking off with things like Milton Berle and the Sid Caesar and things like that. And there were also a number of really funny movies and, and TV shows at the same time. So that would be one. But then again, then we had another, uh, peak in the seventies, which was inspired by things like national, the work, the Mac, national lampoon magazine, Saturday night live and the national lampoon movies. And it was probably a group of maybe like 10 or 15 people and 10 or 15 actors that kind of just cross pollinated over and over again to make things like animal house and national lampoons magazine, things like that. So that, and then I think we had that again in the nineties to some extent with, um, things like the works of, of uh, Mr. Show and Odenkirk and Cross and the, ben, the team of people who worked on the Ben Stiller show and things like that. So what I guess I'm saying is there have been, there's probably been a number of golden and silver eras and it, a lot of it would depend on what your personal sense of humor is because a lot of people probably don't know any of those things I'm talking about <laughs> and just thought that Jay Leno was hilarious, you know, for 20 straight years. So it, it I would say, yes, there have been certain golden eras that I would pick out of a hat, but many people wouldn't agree, probably. So, obviously, you know, you've worked on, I guess, like countless top shows, you know, The Simpsons, Futurama, like The Cleveland Show. We're kind of particularly interested in how you kind of got started, really, you know, when when you go back to school and how you met uh, Josh. So it'd be great to kind of hear just, you know, how you kind of got into the writing and where it all began for you. Sure. I was like... uh, it started out because I was a weird, lonely kid who lived out on a farm, and the only entertain most of the entertainment was old issues of Mad Magazine that my brother had left in the um, 
in the attic. And so like, this was when I was like six, seven and eight years old. There wasn't back in that, those days, there wasn't that much comedy TV that was appealed to kids. And like, you know, there's only three TV channels and like there wasn't, their cartoons were not on all day. And so like, uh, I found all these old man magazines in the attic that my brother had left when he went to college and, and also some national Lampoon magazines. And I spent all my time reading those and decided, and that kind of shaped my sense of humor. And then I said, I wanted to be a cartoonist. So I drew a lot of cartoons and comic strips and things like that from the time I was like seven, all the way up through junior high and high school. And that's where I met Josh in ninth grade. And he, and he and I uh, worked on a number of different things together uh, on the school newspaper. And then we started a humor magazine, um, which we, which he wrote a lot of, and I drew a lot of, and designed, and sort of, I was like the editor in chief, and he was the executive editor, and uh, it it was really good. In retrospect, the magazine for a high school magazine, it was incredibly good. It was easily better than most college humor magazines, and so uh, it, you know that got us our that kind of got us our start. And then I went to college, and I went to the, work on the Harvard Lampoon, which was my had been my goal for years because that's like the college humor magazine gold standard. And um, I was lucky enough to get in there and get into the lampoon. And I also, and then Josh was working on the Stanford humor magazine at Stanford. And we had, uh, we didn't, we had a joint issue of those two magazines. And we also kind of had made him an honorary member. We worked on a lot of stuff together. And then we decided we wanted to go into TV writing. That was the thing that people were doing. Um, the, the magazine, comedy magazine industry was not really thriving at that time. Uh, so we decided we wanted to go into TV writing and we had a real, Hell of a time. We moved to Los. We moved. We got a job working for a cable show in New York, um, which was ended very quickly. And then we moved to LA and we're unemployed for like a couple of years. And it's it was kind of hard. You know, it was hard to break in um, until we finally wrote this spec script. You have to write a spec script, which is shows off your. You know, you you write a script for free of a show you like uh, to show off your writing skills. And we had written a couple of ones that weren't very good. And then uh, finally, somebody finally Seinfeld came out. And this was in Seinfeld was in its first four episodes. It was so-called the Seinfeld Chronicles. We really liked it. And we decided we're just going to write a, a spec script for Seinfeld. And uh, it was really popular. And it immediately got us a, a number of job offers, and, and including an assignment to write on The Simpsons. And um, then they liked our Simpsons script and they hired us. So that's, like, that's how we got our start, basically. It's wow. kind of a long, convoluted story. But once we got hired, you know, once making it through the gate is the hard part. And once we made it through the gate, um, we had a number of, uh, lucky stroke strokes of luck at the Simpsons, which allowed us to be running the show within two years of having arrived there. Wow. Um, uh, like Conan O'Brien, who was ahead of us in line, got suddenly became a famous talk show host and left thereby making us the most senior people there after like <laughs> eight months. And, um, and all many of the other original writers left. So um, we did have a number of strokes of luck that got us to running, running the show only two years after having started and only wow. a few years out of college. That's incredible. Um, I'm just like interested now because that was like felt like quite an organic way to get into the industry because you were doing it from a young writing from a young age and obviously very passionate about it. So do you think? I mean, nowadays, if you were a writer trying to get into the industry, because um, you mentioned like writing a spec script and things like that, do you think that still exists now? Is that still a common thing to happen? Yes, but it's not quite as common as it once was. Um, it's very, the whole, and, and first of all, I should say that like, 
I also had the additional benefit of having been on the Harvard Lampoon and people who knew, you know, people from the Harvard Lampoon were more prone to read my scripts. Um, and I think that's probably what happened to the Simpsons with Mike Reese and Al Jean, who had also been on Lampoon and they were, they were more willing to probably read our script than they were just some random person. So there's definitely that kind of thing. Um, in any case, though, now that is still the way things are done, but it is not quite the same. First of all, there's so many more TV shows and TV types of things than there were in the 90s, but they all pay a lot less and they are the work is a lot less. Like back in, the, they say in the 90s, probably all the way from the 50s to the 90s, you worked on a TV show. Generally, there are 22 episodes a year. It was a full-time job all year long. And it was, a, you know, it was like getting, is it getting tenure at a school? If you were a show that was not going to get canceled, it was great because you, you had a full-time job that paid well. And now... Most shows, very few shows make 22 episodes a year. A number of them make six, you know, these streaming shows. And but there are more shows, so there's more opportunities. But it's all like, this is not going to be your, this is not going to pay the bills, mm. you know. And so it is, it's more difficult in that way. Um, although there's also different ways in. Like, I think a lot of people are getting, the spec script is definitely the way, still the gold standard, because you want somebody who can execute you don't want to hire somebody who's really funny on YouTube, but can't write a freaking scene. That's yeah. the thing. You know, it's very annoying to hire people who are funny, but they can't write the script because that's what you need ultimately is a script that you can produce. And if you have to sit there rewriting the script, the whole staff has to take eight solid work days to rewrite your lousy script. It doesn't matter how funny your Twitter account is. You know, that's the thing. And so that's the thing. The ability to execute a script in the format and style of the show is still critical. However, not everybody, you don't need everybody to do that. You can have, if, as long as you, if you have a really funny guy who makes up all the jokes, but can't write the script, then you just have him make up the jokes. You know, there's this ability to manage people and understand their styles, which is important. So anyway, uh, to get back to the point, yes, you can, uh, you still need to be able to execute the script, but not everybody has to do that. You can still be really funny on YouTube or Twitter and funny in different ways or really brilliant at creating characters and st or stuff like that. There's different skills and different skill sets that can get you that can get you um hired in tv but let me also say i don't know that getting hired in tv is all that great in, in these days like if i were starting if i were really funny i still and 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 young i might try to just become famous on youtube and make all the money myself rather than have to worry about like i know it's hard to become famous on youtube but it, it's not it's probably not that much harder than getting hired to work on a TV show and the TV show you're working all day long, executing someone else's vision. And then you're going to be dumped out on the street after five months when it's over. Whereas uh, becoming, building your own brand on YouTube or whatever, you could do whatever you want. You don't have to take any orders from anyone else or any executive notes and the money all comes to you. So it's like, I think that like TV is a great, it's still a great medium and it's still, it's a great place to, execute your vision or whatever but it's not the only one and it's not even like as i said in the 90s that was the one that was where all the money is i don't think that's the case anymore you talked obviously about oh we talked about josh sorry um i was gonna ask you like how when you two worked together how did you kind of collaborate was it quite you know you mentioned there that one person in theory could write jokes and the person could concentrate on the script just curious you know how did it work between you two a couple different ways um for the majority of the time that we worked at The Simpsons and when we were writing our pilots, we would just sit at the computer together. And it's fun. Like, that's the thing that is, that's, it's far more fun than sitting there by yourself uh, to sit there with your 
best friend and make up the jokes and the scenes and stuff. So we would just sit there literally at the computer together and, and write the scenes. That's an extremely slow process though. And it's extremely, it's arduous. Um, because, you know, you just got to, you just got to go through it. Um, step by step and scene by scene and line by line. And it takes a while. Then we finally, I think around 2005, we started a different way of doing it where we each, we kind of talked through the story or the scenes and then we'd each do a draft. Like the Josh would write the first half and I'd write the second half and then we'd switch, we'd swap and then I'd rewrite his half and then we'd write, and then we'd kind of go over it together. But like that was far more efficient and, and the quality was the same and it, it wasn't, um, it, it, it was a slightly more efficient way of doing it. It's far more efficient way of doing it because it didn't take so much time. You were just laboriously going through it in order. Like you kind of broke the scenes down and, and you'd, you'd also find that you were, you didn't write so much stuff that had to be cut. Um, that's the thing. Like we don't, we, uh, for years we wrote scripts that were 20 pages too long, filled with brilliant, 20 pages of brilliant material that simply had to be cut. And we decided that was a waste of time. <laughs> so we kind of wrote these, we, if you write a half-assed version first, you kind of know where you are. And then especially if you swap, you can go a lot faster and it, and the end product is just as good. So, I mean, you get like uh, comedians who walk around every day with a pad of paper and a pen who, you know, spot things in real life and make up jokes, that kind of way. Where would you say you'd get inspiration for, for kind of your comedy writing? Would it be in, things you come across in real life or, or where would you, where'd you dream up the ideas? I think, it, it, you know, this is a cliche, but it kind of comes from everywhere. A lot of it comes from things that things that, uh, it comes from real life things, real life events and people, you know, and, um, it also comes from things you read. Uh, and like, that's like, you know, it's, we, I read a lot of kind of obscure materials. I know Josh reads a ton of old weird books and stuff like that. Um, but also just like from uh, news items and in the Simpsons, some fair amount of stuff that we did came from the USA today newspaper, um, where we just read about like, Oh, this town is legalized gambling and it's caused trouble. And then we're like, Hey, that sounds like a Simpsons episode. Um, so, you know, the, I, the inspiration comes from all over and, uh, it's kind of putting things together in your head, you know, two different types of things. You touched upon uh, when you kind of joined the Simpsons team, kind of how quickly you know you were basically one of the top writers. Just explain like how special kind of was that time when you first joined the Simpsons? Because I mean, I know that back then it was still kind of in its infancy, but it was still very popular. So, what did that kind of mean to you? It was extremely intimidating. Um, that we didn't know anything about this. This was our first, like I told you that we worked on that cable show and we'd also worked on another variety show that had been canceled after three weeks, but we had been unemployed for about a year and a half before this. So it was extremely exciting to even get the assignment to work on the Simpsons because that was when the Simpsons, we were huge fans of the show before the show had gone on for about two and a half years at this point. And it had already peaked. It had already gone. It, it's already had its, the Simpsons was never more popular than it was in its first season ratings wise when it was meeting Bill Cosby and stuff like that. Like the, when it was on, it was, it was in the top 10. And during the time that, that we worked there, it was probably always in the top, it was in the top 30 or 40 maybe, but never in the top 10. Um, and so it was, but we were huge fans of the show. And so when we got the opportunity to write a script, it was very intimidating. We wrote a script that they rewrote heavily, but um, not so much more heavily than anyone else's, I guess. And uh, then when we got hired there, we didn't, it was amazing. It was, it was absolutely staggering to get actually hired to work at the Simpsons at that time. Cause they had only, it was all the new, 
it was all the original people were still there. They hadn't hired anybody new except for Conan O'Brien, um, who got hired about four months before us. So, and, and these guys, the guys in the room at that point were legends. Like these were famous guys in comedy writer circles. You knew like George Meyer, John Schwartzwelder, John Vitti, Mike Reese and Al Jean, like it's a, oh. a murderer's row of people. And you're, we're tossed in there and we're nobodies. And so it, we were just like, uh, we, we didn't even have any idea also how it worked on the TV show. Like, cause they gave us the title story editors and we were like, Oh shit, we're going to have to edit the stories of these guys <laughs> that we didn't, we thought that was, we thought we were going to be rewriting, but actually story editor is just a low, it's just the second lowest right type of writer. Right. Um, so yeah, it was, it was very intimidating. And eventually after a few weeks of kind of just listening and in the vibe of the room, we started to get more, um, you know, we started to say more stuff and get more stuff into the script. And then we wrote our script. We wrote that, uh, first one on staff was that one where Marge goes to shoplifts and goes to jail. And that first draft came out really well. And then shortly after that, uh, everyone left. <laughs> so, and it was just us and Conan and Dan McGrath were the only, literally the only people working on the show. Wow. And that, at that point there's the intimidation, intimidation factor dissolved because we were the only people working on the show and we were the most senior, we were the second most senior people working on the show. And then Conan left, as I said, uh, I'll take three months after that. So, uh, that part, it, it was a rapid ascension <laughs> to becoming the most senior guys in less than a year, I guess. I know it's probably, it's not the best question, but just out of curiosity, how long would it take to go from, you know, a blank page starting to write the script to then it actually being aired? It takes 11 months um, from the time that, from basically from the time you turn in the first draft of the script to the time that the show airs, it takes, it takes 11 months. Um, most of that time is animation time. There's also a lot of pre-write. Like you don't just come up, you don't just start writing the script. There's a lot of pre-writing, of making up of the story and discussing the story with the uh, other writers at the story retreat and things like that. Which takes that takes a lot of work in advance. So there's probably another couple months of that before you even sit down to start typing. Obviously, Simpsons is huge all around the world and it's popular everywhere and it's receptive as like hilarious in any country. So I'm intrigued to see like what you think about the correlation between UK and US humour? Because I know some people see them as quite vastly different, but The Simpsons seems to, you know, it's well-respected everywhere. You know, I think The Simpsons is a unique... The fact that it's animated is something that gives it more of a universal appeal. Like, the show, like you guys know the show Malcolm in the Middle? You ever seen oh, that yeah. show? Yeah, yeah. It's a very yeah. Simpsons-y yeah. like show, but yeah. the fact that it's not animated, I think, is, that you know... The thing about animation is that like it has a certain appeal to everyone, especially to kids all over the world because just because of the visuals. And when you have a live action show, even a show that's equally funny as The Simpsons, it's just not quite the same thing. So that's that's what also The Simpsons was a was a I would say it it was revolutionary at a at a certain point because there wasn't anything else like it. it hadn't been for since the Flintstones in the, you know for 30 years earlier. So a primetime animated show being the first primetime animated show, especially one with that kind of irreverent sense of humor, which was not on TV very much at that time, was it was a couple of different types of new things together at once. I think there's a lot of slapstick in the, and, and humor that that translates well. There's not a lot of observational. Like I heard that Seinfeld is not all that popular overseas, um, and it was you know, number one here for many years. Um, and so I think that like there's a certain you know, there's a certain universality to a lot of the jokes in The Simpsons because a lot of them just are slapstick stuff about a stupid guy or or an obnoxious kid that it transcends culture, every culture, you know? 
how do you think kind of cartoons aimed at more of an adult or general audience, how do you think they've stayed so popular? Because if you think nowadays there's loads, you know, on sort of Netflix and modern uh, streaming services, obviously culture's changed and media's changed. And yeah, just kind of curious to get your opinion on, on why it's managed to stay so kind of popular. I think, well, people, because people grew up with them, I think that's the thing. There was a huge generation gap in, in when The Simpsons came out, people had not, people thought that cartoons were for kids. I, I, I can't make that clear enough. Like the only time you'd ever see cartoons that were not for kids were maybe like a midnight movie where they'd have Spike and Mike's and Twisted Animation Festival or, you know, or something like that or something from overseas. So when The Simpsons came out, everybody was like, animation is for kids. And I can't tell you how annoying it was to hear this. Like when you were working on The Simpsons in 1995, you'd constantly run into people, including TV executives who were like, oh, I don't watch cartoons. Cartoons are for kids. And they would say it with no shame whatsoever. And so like now... I think that's changed. Obviously, people who grew up watching The Simpsons don't have that built-in prejudice. So, And also because so many other shows like South Park, King of the Hill, Futurama, also uh, became part of people's growing up. Like Now you don't run into that at all, um, at least as far as I can tell. And so that's one. So the prejudice against it has, has, um, has vanished, thank God, or mostly vanished or been beaten into the closet. And, and the second thing is that I think I think animated shows provide for more for more excitement than regular live action shows because you also get like live action shows they all look kind of the same because they're all photographed kind of the same and that's just the nature of, of photography whereas animation you get not only you get something on top of that like you know I don't know if you guys you get BoJack Horseman you get stuff yep. that can't ha- that can't happen in real life yeah and you get stuff that gives you and even even animated shows that are very realistic like King of the Hill. I don't know if you guys got that over there, but yeah, King of the yeah. Hill would have been yeah. entirely different if it were live action. Even though that show could have easily been live action, it would have been entirely different and not nearly as entertaining because something about the way that the things are drawn and the way the style of the show is infuses the sense of humor. Like Family, I like to think about like Family Guy if it were drawn realistically, it'd be a very totally different show. Or King of the Hill if it were drawn really cartoony, it would be a very different show. So you get. What I think, what I guess, is you're getting a different dimension. You get an added dimension of entertainment and comic possibility with animation that you don't get in live action. Yeah, I mean, to go back to The Simpsons, um, obviously, you know, it's so iconic, especially for kind of people our age. Because I'm 29, so yeah, I was very much the generation when it was, you know, really, really big. And did you ever envision it being as big as it still is now? Like, did you ever think back then when you're writing these episodes that it'd be so iconic, or you know, was it just uh, you know, was it just an, another script for you, sort sort of thing? Well, we knew it was iconic because I mean, we loved. We were, I think we had a u- somewhat unique perspective in that we were huge fans of the show before we before we got hired there. Everyone else, like, kind of was, was inside the bubble and didn't know, except maybe for Conan, but he had other stuff going on. Like, like to us, like The Simpsons was it was like getting hired to, as I said, to use this again. It was like getting hired to write for Mad Magazine in 1957, or getting hired to write for Saturday Night Live in 1976. Like it was the thing, and so we loved it. We knew it was going to be successful, but I do think we we thought it was going to end. And I've said this before on DVD commentaries and other interviews. No show, no TV shows didn't go past eight or nine seasons. Like even you know, think about all the huge shows of like Cheer of that era and Cheers and and I don't know Murphy Brown and Mash. Like seven, eight, nine seasons, that was it. Like you, TV shows did not go past that period. And so when we were writing, when we were running the show, we were like, this show is going to be over in two years. Let's do every, let's have all the fun we can possibly have with this stupid thing in the sandbox before it dissolves. 
And so that was where we started doing stuff like 22 short films and the Frank Grimes episode and the spinoff spectacular, because we were like, this is a great sandbox that Jim and Matt and Sam have given us. I want to have all the possible fun with this thing we can have before it goes away. And so when we left, we were absolutely certain the show was going to be gone within a year or two, nine or 10. And here we are now 25 years later, it's still going. No, I tell you, nobody could have predicted that. That is a, it's absurd that a TV show that is comedy sitcom would be on for that long is unprecedented in the history of television. Amazing, isn't it? And like we were mentioning before how, you know, comedy changes over the decades. Do you think, have you noticed, um, have you noticed the Simpsons humor changing at all over time? I have only seen a few episodes since I left the show. Cause like, I don't, it's hard for me to watch the show without being like, that's not the way I would do it. And it yeah. makes me frustrated, you know? So I don't, so I don't watch it for entertainment value. Um, I've watched a couple of the special episodes that I've really enjoyed, like the one where they went to Portland, obviously, cause I live in Portland, things like that. But I can't really say, I can't really speak to what the show was like these days. I have no idea. I mean, we can't not mention the iconic kind of, well, it's become a meme now, hasn't it? The um, steamed, steamed hounds. Um, oh yeah, it was meme yeah. of the year last year. It was the really? most most meme thing in, in, in either 2018 or 2019. It was literally internet meme of the year. There's a huge anybody who's interested in this topic needs to Google um, uh, Mail Magazine about a month ago or, or did, a, did the world's most comprehensive history and analysis of the Steam Hams thing. So it's MailMagazine.com and just look for their Steam Hams article. Like it really that guy really did his research and it talks to all the people from all over the world who were ever involved in making this thing a meme. Um, and it's it's quite comprehensive. Yes, for me, I don't get any I don't get any money for it. That's a little <laughs> bit annoying. Um, and and like so, but I like, but it is you know people know me as the seam hams guy i'm sure that it's going to end up being on my tombstone and so like i'm i'm fine with it i like it it's not like i'm the guy <laughs> famous guy whose pants fell down live on live tv i it's I, i'm i'm pleased i like this segment i'm pleased that it took this thing it took 20 years before anybody paid any attention like you have to remember that between like 1996 when it aired and 2016 i never heard about it but now that it's suddenly come back uh it's it delights it, i'm glad everybody liked it i'm happy to hear that yeah, and do you have a favorite meme that that you've seen? Yeah, I said it in that um, in the article. There's this one. I mean, there's a number of great videos, like that one, the aha take on me thing, the hand drawn one, which is absolutely oh, yeah. staggering. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And there's a there's a Lego one, and there's a number of other crazy ones with the audio and stuff that just baffle me. Like every word is the one where they've edited like every word is said in the alphabetical order. That's a crazy one. And then um, I also like this one that I that is. If you go to the magazine and look it up, you'll see it. I don't really want to spoil it, but it's a real sensitive one. It's just a comic strip, like an eight-panel comic strip, um, where about Skinner and Chalmers' relationship. And I won't spoil it any further than that because it's it'll be better if you don't know what's coming. <laughs> okay, cool, cool. Yeah, I mean, it, yeah, so just a great episode. So many quotable lines from that episode. Um, but yeah, very, very good. Uh, another kind of iconic episode which you worked on was Who Shot Mr. Burns? And, yes. you know, with that, I've read that at first, were you not too keen on it being kind of Maggie, the killer? Or is that? No, no, we, we wanted it to be Barney. Like we at that point, this was before Barney became sober. And everybody was like, Barney's getting the tire. Barney's getting tiresome. These drunk jokes are getting tiresome. Let's send Barney away. And we were like, it's perfect because Barney has no apparent motive to murder Mr. Burns. And we were like, we thought it'd be super cool because like then it just changed the dynamic of the show to have Barney be in prison. And then he gets paroled a couple years later. It'd be interesting. So that was what we were kind of dead set. We also wanted it to be a mystery 
that was like kind of complex and whatever. So when we took it to the story retreat, uh, Jim Brooks was like, it needs to be a Simpson who committed the murder. And we were like, ah, oh, no. And then he was like, what if it was the baby? And we were like, oh, that's terrible. But you're not going to tell it to Jim Brooks because he's the genius. He's a television and he's a dramatic genius. So we were like, we didn't like it. We thought that was corny. And we went back to the writer's room and then, and David Merkin, who's running the show was like, okay, what if it was Maggie, but it was not an accident. And then we were like, Hey, <laughs> we like that. And we were like, but how are we going to communicate? That it was not an accident. Well, all we have to do is have her eyes dart at the end so that she looks <laughs> like she, she knew what she was doing. And, yeah. and then we were like, okay, that's it. That's great. That's great. That's perfect. It's so much better that it is a Simpson. Jim Brooks is right. That's why he's Jim Brooks and, and Merkin uh, fixed, you know, solved our problem with it by making it not be an accident. And so that's, you know, and the rest is history. I'm going to have to watch that episode as soon as we uh, we finish this call. <laughs> I can't wait to see that one again. Yeah, it's, that's, fun. that's my favorite one that we wrote. Who Shot Mr. Bird's Part 1 is my favorite script, Simpsons script that we wrote, I think. Um, maybe that in Australia. I was going to mention Australia. Um, so where did the boot idea come from? That was not our idea either. Like a lot of times people are like, we love that crazy shit that you made up. And we're like, we don't like the crazy shit. We like the stuff that's <laughs> a little more realistic. So mm. like w- when we had it, it was based on that incident where that guy got caned, that, that kid who was, you know, in the nineties, I think it was going to, we had some other punishment for him that was far more realistic. And Merkin again was like, I think he wanted something crazier and he made up the boot. So we were like, Oh, that's too silly. But in retrospect, it's great. So like at the time we were on a constant battle to not make the show too silly. And there was a forces pulling against us. And in retrospect, our, I think it was a good blend of our stuff that was a little more realistic, down to earth, and observational, combined with the extremely silly stuff that would come from Merkin or Schwarzwelder, was it made a good blend. Another great episode when you kind of write an episode like that. Did you always know you wanted to set it in Australia? No, that was the point. We were like, it was one of those things where we were making up stories for the story conference or whatever. And a lot of times you would be like, many of the episodes have titles that are like Bart versus Thanksgiving. Yeah. or you know or lisa versus malibu stacy so uh, one of the ways that you come up with a story is what what's the other side of that bart versus blank and we were like what's something that's really big that he could be something that's huge that he could be versus and we're like well how about a continent well okay australia <laughs> seems like a continent and they're like oh my god and then like the thing is it immediately starts coming together once you have that idea because it's like wait a minute we could just pack this whole thing filled with australia jokes australia uh, people in Australia like the Simpsons. And so this, it's like Im- immediately once that, once you have the slot machine with the three reels, Bart versus it ends on a, an Australia. You're like that, that story writes itself mm. pretty much. And, and so that was like, it came together quickly because we were literally just looking for what could fill in the second part of this equation, Bart versus blank. So you've written, um, you know, episodes for various TV shows. Uh, has there been one in particular, which you can think of, which when it was first released, wasn't that re- well received? Yeah, well, I mean, most of those things, see, those things, they they don't get to come back. The things that are not popular don't get to come back. Unfortunately, The Simpsons is the only thing that I've done a ton of stuff that I missed. For instance, the entire series of Mission Hill, which Josh and I created, which is our pride and joy, like, you know, went down the tubes after two weeks in 1999. But then it ran on Adult Swim for five straight years. And so people love it now. And we're actually in the process of maybe trying to uh, bring it back or bring off a spin a spin-off of it. So that's. Yes, that's one thing. The other things we've done, we did a lot of things that I think are terrific that that you never heard about. Like we wrote a movie that we wrote a movie that was going to be made and then they suddenly didn't make it and now it's in a file cabinet somewhere or, or you know someone's hard drive and um we had a number of other TV shows that are 
that we did pilots for that were also, in my opinion, excellent, which, you know, but they never saw the light of day that, you know, that's literally on a, on a DVD or VHS tape in some vault somewhere. So unfortunately, most of the things that we've done that we thought were great that deserve a second chance are never going to get that chance. Um, the Simpsons have the bet has the benefit of constantly airing for 25 straight years. So episodes that, like nobody liked the Frank Grimes episode when we, as far as we knew, it just was broadcast to avoid uh, people who didn't like it. And so, but then now it turns out people did like it or they like it now. Same with steamed hams and 22 short films episodes. So those are the ones that have gotten their vindication over time. I would say the other projects that we worked on have not been so fortunate. So in terms of like, at the moment, I know you do a lot of uh, food reviews, and that's a big, big thing for you at the moment. Um, yes. What's kind of like been the weirdest thing, weirdest food that you've reviewed so far? You know, I, I don't generally try to review weird food because there's plenty of people doing a lot of stunt stuff. There's, plenty, I have done some, and be, but I have to like YouTube is loaded with people like I'm going to eat these ground up worms and stuff yeah. like that, and there's that. I'm not trying to tread into that world. I'm trying to review stuff seriously, but I have done a couple of weird things, like just because I'm curious about them personally, like Limburger cheese. I never had it. I was like, I heard about it in cartoons for 50 years. I had to try it. So I did Limburger cheese. I also ate some crickets, but like that was again for my own, there was like packaged crickets that were barbecue flavored. But again, I wanted to try those. Um, mm. The one thing that I, I have sitting here that I don't want to eat, but I'm going to, is the surströming. You guys know what surströming is? Is this pickled herring from Sweden that is fermented oh. and rot, rotten. It's apparently the smelliest food in the world. And yes. somebody sent it to me and I was like, will you review this? And I was like, I kind of have a morbid curiosity about it. So that will probably be <laughs> upcoming. Um, and like, other than that, like I prefer to, I prefer to review good food <laughs> or, or, in, or, you know, new or food of a certain prominence, but like, this is my hobby. Like, this is not a thing that pays, uh, any money. I didn't, I do it. I mainly do it on Instagram and these 59 second videos. Um, but it's, it, it's a, it's a fun hobby and it's resulted in me getting a ton of free food, um, yeah. food and, and beer and liquor and stuff from people all over the world. And I have like just this whole room is filled with <laughs> Canadian potato chips and Japanese sodas and all this stuff. And, um, and that's a huge treat. And also, you know, I want to fashion my theory. Theoretically, I want to fashion myself into the kind of person that you would see on a, the food network or something like that. Who's like a celebrity who there's, that, that show is loaded with people who don't, who aren't chefs but mm -hmm. seem to know something seem to be respected in their take about food and i want that kind of person to be me i want, I want to be one of those people um have you had anything kind of sent over to you from the uk that you can think of if you had yes i have gotten um you know it, I, I get a lot more stuff from canada because it's a lot cheaper for people to send stuff i've actually i just got my first package from australia which i am thrilled about and i got um i've had a two or three things from the uk which and my favorite thing is these is those irish potato chips those potato you know, there's, you know, I don't know, you guys aren't in Ireland, but they're only, they're called Tato and they, and they have a number of unusual flavors that are kind of of Irish origin. And I love those. Um, I have not had, oh, I've had some things from the UK, but, um, I tend to like the candies there. Like the lion bar is one of my favorite oh, candies, yeah, yeah, yeah. um, in the world. And, uh, I haven't had, I don't really recall any specifically amazing potato chips. I think those came from Ireland. Mm. yeah mm. yeah our, our chips they're not that great um no. walkers yeah, right yeah, yeah oh, exactly. i have yeah. i did have one or two good really good walkers but i don't the the, uh, the flavors don't spring to mind at the moment in terms of away from food review stuff what have you got on the horizon any kind of projects you can tell us about i am 
working on a pilot for Adult Swim that oh, I cool. am writing with a um, that is going to be kind of crazy. <laughs> it's kind <laughs> of a Schwarzweldery universe type thing, and um, even though I'm writing it, and uh, that's that's my full time thing right now. Uh, I'm also Josh and I have been working literally for almost a year to on a reboot. Not a, it's not a reboot of Mission Hill. It's basically the Mission Hill. It's a continuation of Mission Hill that starts six months after the original series, uh, with an emphasis on Gus and Wally, the other character, the older gay men, and uh, that. But it's taken. Anytime you have to deal with these rights issues and stuff, it's like the Warner Brothers is literally taking 10 months of dealing with this with this contract, and we still aren't even close to done. So those are the two biggest things. Um, and then, you know, obviously, if people follow me on Instagram, almost every week, certainly almost every day, I have something new on my Instagram story. And every week or so, I have a new somewhat humorous food review on my Insta- my regular Instagram. So that's if, if you're interested in seeing what I'm up to, that's the easiest way to do it. Because it doesn't have to go through a thousand layers of executives and and corporations, and that's why again I'm back to this thing about YouTube, where like the more layers of approval you have to get, and the more money you have to get from the outside world, the slower it's going to be, the more of a hassle it's going to be. But the payoff could be huge, but the payoff could also be huge if you have a million followers on YouTube. So um, you know that's the, the there's more choices. I like that there's more choices for stuff like this today. Mm-hmm. Definitely, um, Ben. Did you have anything else you wanted to ask? I think that that wraps us up really nicely, and uh, I'm very aware, Bill, that you've probably got a lot to do today. So um, I'm just going to sit inside and try to not inhale too much smoke. That's all <laughs> I'm going to do. I got these air purifiers going, and uh, you know, because we have these forest fires here in Oregon, and this city is under this huge blanket of smoke that even inside makes it smell like there's a barbecue going on in your in your living room. Oh yeah, we also of course have a big, we also have a pandemic and we also have a crazy president who's ruining the country. So those three things combine <laughs> to make it not the ideal time, but I'm happy to spend a little time with you guys to talk about something else. Cool. Great. We um, appreciate it. Yeah, <laughs> right. well thanks so much for thanks so much for coming on the show and just uh giving us an hour of your time just to pick your brains about these kind of things. It's it's so interesting to to chat to you and excellent. Well have a good rest of rest of what remains of your weekend, guys. It's great to talk to you. Thank you. Thank you very much. much. Thanks, Bill.